Hey everyone, welcome to A Questioning Faith. This is a podcast crafted for us to be able to ask hard questions about our faith, about scripture, about art, about all sorts of things that impact our lives. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and uh, be sure to check out John Fuller's book, Enter Into My Rest. Check it out at www.enterintomyrest.com. Welcome, everybody, to A Questioning Faith. We have, uh, as usual, John Thomas Fuller and Braden and Liz Garwood, and I am Eric Meyer. We are talking today, the question that we're continuing to explore is, what is the Bible? And because there isn't one answer to that question, what is the Bible? There are many questions, uh, or there are many answers to that question. Um, we will be exploring and continue to explore the variety of those um, of those answers. I don't even know if we could say there is an answer <laughs> or answers. Uh, we can we can explore um, the meaning perhaps. And today, that meaning is in art, artistry, the art of story, the art of poetry, and. In fact, there's so much art. The Bible is itself a work of art that maybe, and we'll see how many episodes that, that we do with this story uh, or with this, this uh, idea of the Bible as the, uh, the art of story. Um, and I think what I'll do, John, is you've spent so much of your life exploring the art of the Bible. I'll pass it to you and let you explain how the Bible as a work of art speaks to you. When I was thinking about this um, this week, it brought up a lot because the Bible is just chock full of art. And one of the screaming examples for me is when the dedication offerings for the tabernacle are being given, it is in a very repetitive formula. And the repetitive formula serves an important purpose. You know, in the ancient world, because most cultures did not write things down, and uh, there are reasons for that itself, they had to develop memorization techniques. And one of the techniques is meter and rhyme and so on. So these dedication offerings actually contain information that is important to the functioning in life. And it correlates exactly to a 24-hour day, 60 minutes per hour, 60 seconds per minute. And there was a third degree, 60 60ths of a second per second and or yeah that's correct and that is a babylonian scientific piece of information which obviously the redactors in the second temple period would have known but it's given in the form of a repetitive formula it's formulaic and it would there be therefore be both metrical and poetic and to give you an example of why that works as a memorization technique. So every child, by the time he or she hits puberty, would know these numbers and they would also have been taught what they mean. 
because after all, for the Israelites in the desert, this was their Encyclopedia Britannica. They had to preserve all of their knowledge base in some fashion. And um, just to give you an idea of something from my generation, a song back in the 70s came out called Bohemian Rhapsody. It goes on and on and on and on. And every person I knew knew every single word, every single chord change, every single bridge, every single one of us to this day, and we're talking almost 50 years later, can sing that song because that's how effective the device is. Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And since we have musicians in the room, Braden, uh, <laughs> Uh, do you have anything you'd like to add? The way that the Bible has been a piece of art to me, or like from from the musician artist standpoint, like I sing, I sing songs every Sunday, um, and have been singing songs every Sunday for well, most of my life. Sometimes I get to pick what song that is. And I don't always pick brand new songs because repeating the same song over and over again, I hear different things. I feel different things when I practice this. You know, if there's an emotional song that I'm going to sing on Sunday, golly, I better play it a whole bunch of times and try to get the emotions worked through it. You know, whether that's in my living room or at the, at the church during the week practicing or whatever, so that I'm not surprised on Sunday when I'm singing those particular words or that part of the song and those same emotions bubble up again. And I, I feel like scripture does a lot of those same things for us. We, we, we read the same stories over and over and over and over and without actually like digging into it a little bit, practicing with it, sitting and, and dealing with the emotions that it's drawing out of us. Um, I think it's easy to miss a lot of what was intended to be there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, Liz, how does the art of the Bible speak to you? And maybe as a thought starter in your work with children? Well, I'll go back to the musician part first because that's what we did first. Um, but uh, for me, it's in the Bible, you have to search and um, kind of marinate in the words to really get that meaning to resonate with your heart and your soul. It's the same thing with music. We could hear a song a million times and until something is happening in our life that's a major mm. impact, those mm. words change. And so um, sometimes we'll hear a song or we'll decide we want to do a song and it's actually a scripture in the Bible that we just we never connected together. So that's, that's my take on musician. Um, the first picture that came to my head, to my mind was Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And that is such an amazing piece of art because it's, that's what, that's what Christ wants for, um, for, for the beat for everybody. Uh, you know, welcome people, welcome people as they were your children. Um, and that children should not just be seen and not heard, but no, no, 
these kids are not the future. <laughs> they will save your church now if you let them. <laughs> there's, there's a part of what I'm hearing in this is that you use the word, uh, in, in talking about music, you use the word marinate. And that takes me to cooking is another form of art, I think. Um, being able to put flavors together in ways that don't make people want to gag. Um, so with kids and children's ministry, I think one of the things that we're doing there is creating the marinade. Mm. We're creating the thing that those, like the thoughts and the, the ideas and the, the perspectives, we're, we're placing our perspectives on these scriptures which translates into a quote-unquote recipe for the marinade. Oh, you guys have added some really beautiful imagery for us, speaking of metaphor and imagery. Um, well, and if you talk about the, kid, the Kids Connect, that's like literal, that's, that's, a, that's artwork you can watch right now. Yeah. And yeah. it's what the adults, what the parents and the adults are learning, and then just put it in a little spin in a kid way. And... That's fantastic. So. so the reason that this question is so important is uh, partly because American Christians, and that's the only context I have, so I don't know if this is the case in other countries, but American Christians tend to look at the Bible as a thing, as a, uh, as a rule book, as a dry, dead, dusty tome, that has very little to offer other than literal instructions when nothing could be further from the truth. And I highly recommend Robert Alter, A-L-T-E-R, the Hebrew Bible, a translation with commentary. It's expensive, but it is a true work of art. And Robert Alter, one of the most important Hebrew scholars in the world is in his 80s now and has spent his life translating. And when he wrote this translation, he began writing it and actually completed it over the course of 25 years. And in his notes in the introduction, he says, the world doesn't need another English translation of the Hebrew Bible. We have hundreds of them. But what it does need is a translation that captures the art of the Hebrew language. It captures the poetry, the rhyme, the meter, the rhythm, the best that it can in English. And it's almost impossible to do that, to take the, the, the sound of another language and you know, bring it into English, but that was Alter's goal. And he offers the perspective at the beginning. He said, modern translators and their zeal to uncover the meaning of the biblical text for instruction of modern re readership frequently lose sight of how the text intimates its meanings. The distinctive artfully deployed features of ancient Hebrew prose and poetry that are instruments for the articulation of all meaning, message, insight, and vision. We miss that. Uh, and and to, to our great detriment, we teach people that the only way to understand what the Bible says is the literal meaning of the words mm -hmm. and to ignore the artistry. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we do that. Uh, I shouldn't say we in general. People that do that are afraid of the artful meaning. Or another it, interpretation. Basically. Because that's what it is, Liz, yeah. right. Because it offers another interpretation or the potential to say, my interpretation is wrong, therefore I don't know what the Bible means. Mm -hmm. Which is so hard for but people as, when that's they, they put their whole entire foundation on this belief of this is how it is. And then something comes along and just shakes their foundation. They don't know what to do. So they are afraid. And yeah. And, and that what you two have talked about songs, the way a song can change meaning after an event happens in your life. Ooh, yeah, that's exactly what happens. That's it happens in the Bible all the time because the Bible is a living work of art. As songs are living works of art. I've heard poets, I love poetry, and um, and the same thing, I've heard poets and songwriters say the same thing, that uh, uh, Freddie Mercury, speaking of Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury refused to tell anybody what that song meant, because it's a work of art. He said, as soon as I release this work of art to the world, I no longer own it. Mm -hmm. I don't have the right to tell people what it means. What an insightful genius, right? Hmm. So if, if the artist of Bohemian Rhapsody, if the artist of poetry, uh, and I, I've read numerous poets that have said the same exact thing. Once I release this to the world, I'm not going to tell you what it means to me because it is now yours. Seamus Haney is, is a, an uh, Irish poet who uh, has said that. And man, his poetry, some of it, you go, what in the world was he drinking when he wrote this? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but he'll never say, he, he would never say because it's not his job to tell us what the art means. Uh, we have to live it. And that is why the Bible as a work of art is so powerful because the Holy Spirit speaks to us through our experiences. Uh, and Liz, you mentioned metaphor, and that's what Alter also says. He says, uh, a good deal of the biblical language ba is based on the body. It's what a linguist would call metaphor or imagery. We take the body parts and use them as examples of meaning in the world and bodily functions. Uh, and to think that he, he says here, here take taken from body parts and bodily functions, uh, metaphor is made to stand for some, uh, metaphorically they stand for some general concept is uh, fixed in, uh, in the vocabulary of the language as I in English can mean perceptiveness uh, or a connoisseur's understanding, the eye of the beholder. Uh, many modern biblical versions eschew anything which smacks of imagery or metaphor based on the curious assumption, I guess, that modern English is an imagery language. <laughs> you know, his sarcasm just drips from the page there, right? Uh, the price paid for this avoidance of the metaphorical will become evident by considering two characteristics of recurrent Hebrew terms and the roles they play in representing the world of biblical imagery. The Hebrew noun zera has the general meaning of seed which can be applied either in agricultural sense or to human beings as the term for semen. The metaphorical extension, semen becomes the established designation for what 
is produced, or progeny. Modern translators evidently unwilling to trust the ability of adult readers to understand that seed may mean prodigy, repeatedly render it as offspring, descendants, heirs, progeny, posterity. But I think there's convincing evidence in the text themselves that the biblical writers never entirely forgot the term for offspring also meant semen and had a price, precise equivalent in the biblical world, in the, in the vegetable world. Even in context not directly related to sexuality, the concreteness of this term of this term often amplifies the meaning of the utterance. When, for example, at the end of the story of the binding of Isaac, God reiterates his promise to Abraham, the multiplication of seed is strongly linked with cosmic imagery, hearkening back to the creation story of heaven and earth. God says, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the shores of the sea. Alter then says, if seed here is rendered offspring or descendants, what we get is essentially a mathematical simile of numerical increase. That is, in fact, the primary burden of the language God addresses to Abraham. But as figurative language, it also imposes itself visually on the retina of the imagination. So the underlying idea of a single late-born son whose descendants will be countless millions is the image of a human seed, perhaps reinforced by the shared white color of semen and stars scattered across the vast expanse of starry skies and through the innumerable particle sand of sand on the shore of the sea. To substitute offspring for seed here may not fundamentally alter the meaning, but it diminishes the vividness of the statement, making it just a little harder for readers to sense why these ancient texts have been so compelling down through the ages. And Liz and Braden, what you've talked about is why these ancient texts are so compelling. Mm -hmm. Because they're fresh and new every time we go back to them. John, you had, uh, when we were preparing for today, that one of the comments that Alter said, you know, hearkening back to the creation story, you had made a statement about if we don't understand, if we, if we aren't familiar with the story itself, then we miss all of the illusions that come in late. You know, the Bible as a work of art builds upon itself. And if we don't understand how that is working, then we miss the meaning of the artistry. Uh, would you mind uh, sharing some of that? Uh, we were talking about 2 Samuel chapter 6 and how that artistry works. This year, I am reading my Bible differently. Instead of trying to race through the Bible to get it all in in one year, I'm just allowing the text to lead me. And I literally spent, I forgot how much time uh, I texted Eric, but my entire Bible study was on just a handful of verses in this chapter of 2 Samuel. And in there, uh, my attention was first raised in sentence or um, chapter 6, verse 3. Um, they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Avinadav, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Avinadav, were leading the new cart. And 
then of course what happens is when it the cart is upset they grab a hold of the ark and are killed you know instantly the wrath of god just takes them right out and i noticed immediately and i did look it up in my concordance to confirm it the name of the one son uza is actually a noun form of essentially the power of God. And his brother's name, Ahio, literally means his brother. But what really got my attention was the father's name is Avi, father Nadav, of Nadav. So Nadav's father. And right away, it told me that this is actually referring back to the Exodus story in which um, Aaron's two sons offer what is essentially unsanctioned incense offerings to the Lord. And of course, they were taken up. And the sons' names were Nadav and what was the other one? Avihu. Okay, so obviously then the father's name being Avi Nadav means the father of Nadav. We're supposed to be recognizing that that's a reference to Aaron and his sons. And the stories, um, this one obviously builds on the other one, but they reinforce each other in terms of meaning. And because we rarely go into the depth of understanding the meaning of the names, and um, Braden made a comment about that, I think a couple of uh, pod podcasts ago, um, it's very important. This is intentional. I, I'm not going to suggest, and I have actually written elsewhere that it doesn't matter to me whether or not God actually, you know, had the mom name these kids these names in order to fulfill this story, or if some random scribe said, okay, this is a reference to that event in Exodus, I'm just going to use these names, because the end result is the same for the student of the Bible. You're supposed to get the meaning that we must approach God with respect and humility. Otherwise, um, our arrogance will get us into uh, deep water, as it were. We know about that. <laughs> yeah. I think we all do. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to share this story is because if we don't have some biblical literacy, we read that and we see a very angry God. Mm. And that's, that's one of the reasons that people say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because that God is an angry God. Yeah. And you know, it's just, it's misinterpretation. It's missing the art of the authors and showing us that it's, um, it's a, it's evidence of the kind of poetry that the Jewish authors used. Their poetry is very different than English poetry, where our poetry often rhymes. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. It reinforces. So I, this is Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire is the first phrase. And the people's plot in vain. Conspire and plot. Emphasizing the, you know, 
duplication to emphasize people are conspiring and plotting. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Uh, the kings give themselves authority and the rulers hang out together against the Lord saying, let, uh, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. A reinforcement of the plotting and the conspiring. So in the same way, and if you look at the Psalms, you see this constantly. Almost all of the Psalms are structured in this way. Uh, it's, it's called parallelism. And you, you get either um, parallelism or reverse parallelism. So in parallelism, I just gave an example of repeating the same idea. Reverse parallelism, uh, it would say, why do the, some, an example would be, why do the nations conspire and yet the people don't conspire? You know, so it's one line says one thing and the second line says the opposite. Uh, but that is, you know, that's the form of Hebrew poetry. And so when we see it in a Psalm, we see one line right after the other is very obvious. But what John just showed us is also the poetry of the Bible in repeating themes, these themes that repeat throughout the Bible. Uh, honor and respect God, be humble. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, we, we look at those two stories and say, look, those people didn't do what God wanted and God destroyed them. God must be angry and evil. Oh, you know. Nothing, you know, nothing to be further from the truth. It's just a misreading of the poetry. I think that at a certain level as well, because from a Jewish perspective, God withdrew himself from creation out of love because God's being would just, if God were completely present in this creation right now, here and now, it would literally destroy all of creation because we don't even have a concept of the power behind the name so in a certain regard that's just telling people you're not you're not able like moses to come into the tent and you know talk to me face to face and i'm telling you these things for your protection not because i'm being mean it's because mm -hmm. i love you and we don't you know i i don't think i've ever heard a christian actually express an idea similar to that but again you know if we understand the bible the old testament from a jewish perspective it says a lot it has a very different message um, for our purposes i think a way to maybe think about that as far as god's if god's presence god's everything were to like be physically manifested here somehow and it would like that idea that it would kind of and again this is all metaphorical language so it's it's tricky but it would like blow up everything right yeah if i tried to explain nuclear physics to my son who is three years old almost his brain would melt and he'd go play with his excavator no, he'd go, gah, 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 gah. and then he'd go play with in the dirt out in the, out in the backyard because that's that's where he's at no that's, dad not you yeah like he just he doesn't have the experiences necessary 
and the knowledge necessary to understand anything about physics, one, let alone nuclear physics. Maybe if you did an experiment or something with him. Yeah, like I can throw a ball in the air and show him that the ball's going to come down and that will give something. But to try to just math it out for him and, and map it and here's the whole answer. He doesn't have the hands or the mentalness things that he needs to be able to actually carry that and do anything with it. Are we speaking messages that lots of people can understand? Are we speaking a message that only certain people can understand? So I just, I want to pause there for a second, John, and I'll let you go. But uh, I just love Braden's turns of phrase. (laughs) He doesn't have the mentalness things. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I I can't, again, metaphors. They sometimes keep working and they don't. It's perfect. So what I wanted to throw out there, all of you people as parents also know that you have to make decisions for your children because you know we'd all like to think oh yeah the child will be able to kind of lead himself in life but guess what children will play out in the middle of a highway because (laughs) i'm serious i've seen because we tell them not to do it and and there's a point where you have to be able to be the adult and say i don't want you to get killed Mm -hmm. end of statement Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's kind of where this goes. God is actually really in love with us and wants our well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think where people maybe get a little stuck, I've heard some, you know, God's plan for my life. Well, it must have been God's plan to take my husband or God needed my daughter up in heaven. It's like, no, 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 people, God didn't take these people away. There is cancer of the earth. There are diseases of the earth. And God didn't create these things, but God is with you in these times. So God's plan is to, hey, I'm going to be walking with you. I'm here if you need me. If you want to grow a relationship, let's do it. And God never leaves us. So. To carry forward what what, uh, the three of you are sharing, this is what Alter talks about in the books of the prophets and when he sets up the, his introduction to the prophetic books he reminds us that prophecy is not about fortune telling the the prophets sometimes predicted the future but that was not their main intention alter writes prophecy in the sense of soothsaying or predicting of the future events was of course widespread in the near in the ancient near east as it is in many earlier cultures. Figures who practice prophecy of this sort appear in some of the narratives in the form of prophets, some of the narratives. But in the middle decades of the eighth century, a new phenomenon emerged. Prophets who, while retaining a good deal of the predictive function of their earlier counterparts, assumed the role of the conscience of the people, carrying out missions of moral castigations directed not just at rulers, as say in the the case of Elijah in the Book of Kings, but in the general populace. They delivered their message in the form of elevated speech that was often, though not always, framed as poetry, a procedure encouraged by the fact that they typically claimed to be quoting God's very words. Thus said the Lord is the recurrent introductory formula for the prophecies. Some of these prophets were poets of first rank. This is manifestly the case of Isaiah, son of Amos, and for the anonymous poet of the Babylonian exile whose prophecies uh, begin in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah. 
And there's remarkable poetry in Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, and in other and others of these figures. It, the reason I bring that up is because of what all three of you have said about uh, God loving us too much to leave us the way we are, but at the same time recognizing we are children. And to, to what John was saying, you know, God is saying, will you guys stop playing in the street? You're going to get run over. And that's what the prophets were doing. Now, did the prophets literally hear God speak to them? Uh, maybe, but that's not the point. The point is they are offering poetry. And poetry is a work of art. And for us to say we can interpret this work of art and know what it literally means, we can't do that with any work of art, <laughs> any piece of poetry, right? Uh, uh, Emily Dickinson, I think, wrote, tell the truth, but tell it slant. The truth in circuit lies. The truth in a circle lies. Tell the truth, but tell it slant. Uh, the truth in circuit lies. As lightning to a child, uh, Oh, I can't remember it exactly, but but uh, but look it up. Tell the truth and tell it. Uh, tell it slant is the name of the poem. Um, uh, the truth must be told to a child gradually, or like lightning, uh, the flash of lightning will shatter us and stun us. So that that's kind of what the biblical poet is doing. And Emily Dickinson realized that's what poets do. They tell the truth but they tell it in a way that catches us off guard, catches us slant. Maybe because like Liz, you said earlier, we don't wanna change. We know our belief system and we like our belief system. It keeps us safe. Oh, read it for me, Braden. All right, so this is Tell All the Truth, But Tell It Slant by Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies to bright, for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. John, that is exactly what you were saying about God's presence in our lives, right? You know, um, we, this has come up previously, but what I hear in there is also what Harold told me, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, and that was, if a snake sheds his skin too early, he will die. Just another way of saying what you just said. Mm -hmm. God loves us. He's willing to allow us our process, period. And that might be hard for people to grasp. And he will, he will uh, get involved to protect us. There is a, another form of the poetry that I mentioned. Parallelism can also be called chiasm. And chiasm, uh, the name comes from the letter chi, which is an X shape. And the with the meaning in the center so the center point of an x where the two lines cross 
the meaning comes in the center of the chiasm. And this is something that is also a very fun way to recognize the art in the Bible. And also to recognize the genius of the biblical authors in the way they structured and crafted their poetry. Uh, we have, there is a egotism, uh, a modernist ego that in which we think that we are far superior to people that came before us because we're modern and we're smarter. And those people that lived back then were nowhere near as smart as we are. So Google search chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M and Google search biblical chiasms and you will be stunned at the brilliance of these authors and how they crafted their poetry. So here's an example from the, the first chapter of, uh, actually from, uh, yeah, the first chapter of Jonah. So um, if we want to understand the meaning of the author, the intention of the author, we can't just read the story literally. If we, uh, if we think, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Is Liz still there? Yeah, there you are. <laughs> so, Braden and Liz, the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the story of, when you hear the name Jonah, whale. the whale, the whale, the and, whale, the uh, whale, musical I did it when I was in elementary school, uh, school age at church. <laughs> What oh, Jonah, 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 Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> oh Do you remember the, the, like the main takeaway from that musical? What was the, uh, was there a moral to it or a main point? Yeah, it was, um, I don't know, like, don't, don't sit in the belly of a whale. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, God's not chasing after us. God's calling us to big stuff. So let's go. <laughs> so but now, I mean, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. But, but it's, it's a great point in that if we all think of the story of Jonah, um, uh, we think that God sent a fish or a whale to eat Jonah and punish right. him. Right. Right. So this is the literary unit, uh, the chapters one and chapters two, the first half of Jonah is a unit. And then the second half of Jonah, chapters three and four, is a, is a very separate unit. Um, and the chiasm is shaped with the a first sentence matches the last sentence. And then it works towards the middle. So, for example, verse, verses one and two of the story, chapter one, verses one and two, the Lord told Jonah to, go, to enter Nineveh. And as John was speaking earlier, the names mean things. Nineveh means house of the fish. Okay, so what? chapter... <laughs> Nineveh? Nineveh means house of the fish. Um, so chapter two, Nineveh? verses one, uh, the Lord appointed a great fish to house Jonah, to eat Jonah, to be a house for Jonah. <laughs> so verse... Chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah fled the Lord instead of fearing him or revering him. Chapter 1, verse 16. So if, if you Google search this, you'll see the shape. 
kind of looks like half of an X working towards the center. The sailors feared the Lord with great fear. That's an example of reverse parallelism. The Lord, uh, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind towards the sea. Verse 15, the sailors hurled Jonah towards the sea. Verse 5, the sailors prayed to their gods. Verse 14, the sailors prayed to the Lord. Verse 5, the sailors hurled the cargo into the sea. Jonah is asleep. Verse 12 and 13, Jonah is hurled into the sea. The sailors rode for shore. The captain ordered Jonah to pray for salvation. Verse 6, the sailors asked Jonah what they must do. Verse 11, Jonah is found out by by, uh, drawing lots. Verse uh, 7, the sailors ask, what have you done? Verse 10, and in the center of the chiasm, the, the verse that is the center point, Jonah and his sailors fear the Lord, verses 9 and 10. Revere the Lord, are in awe of the Lord. What, is, what does the poet want us to recognize? Well, it's the same exact thing. Now, I didn't plan this, John. I did not organ, or orchestrate this so that the Jonah and the sailors fear the Lord is the exact same thing that we were talking about in second Samuel and in Exodus, (laughs) but somebody's hand is in this. (laughs) But uh, if we spend time with the prophets, we are going to hear that theme over and over and over again. So we get a very different. So what is the theme of, what is the 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 uh, the meaning of that little book of Jonah? Those four chapters. We're getting a clue in in the chiasm. So as we read this, the original readers, the original audience, would recognize that we are given a clue to how we should be hearing the story. We should be hearing this work of art by the way the chiasm, the poetry, is crafted. Uh, Jonah never really does fear the Lord. He fights and screams and argues and yells at God. And then the poem. (laughs) Me too. Me too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then this poem, this work of art ends with God asking a question. It ends with a question mark. Are we going to behave like Jonah? Just to, just to, so the art, that art is so powerful. The meaning is so powerful when we add art to it instead of just um, if the author would have given us an answer and Jonah said, yes, I will serve the Lord the rest of my days. Uh, that, that just kills the meaning. In the same way that if you read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, and and you read verses 9 through however many verses there are, and it says something along the lines of, and 
the decide. You know what? I'll just Braden. Uh, uh, never mind. I got it here. I I see Braden had his phone, so I was going to ask him to pull it up, but I I've got my Bible software open. Now, uh, this is verse 9, chapter 16 of Mark. Now, after Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Later, he appeared to the 11 themselves while they were sitting at the table, and he upbraided them for lack of faith and stubbornness because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the, to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in tongues, they will pick up snakes in their hands, and they will drink any deadly thing and it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the messages by signs that accompanied it. Well, nice, nice, neat wrap up to the story, but that's not what Mark the artist wrote. Mark the artist finishes his story with a tremendous irony after having the like eight times Jesus tell people to be silent don't tell anybody about me now Jesus is risen the angel says Jesus is, is risen he is no longer here just like he told you he's been risen he's risen from the dead go tell the disciples and the women say nothing for they are terrified and that's it. He stops it there. <laughs> and, and some scribe, at least 100 years later, couldn't stand it. Couldn't Just couldn't take it. Couldn't believe the art. Couldn't listen to the meaning that is in the art. And then wrote a compilation of the endings of the other three Gospels. Because the, the power in Mark's story is so stunning that it was unsettling to that author, and it's unsettling to us. Do we go out and share our experiences of God, or do we stay silent because we are afraid of what people think of us? Share, 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 share. Yeah, but I'm also <laughs> really scared. Eventually, you get to a point where you do not. Let me just tell you, you get to a point where you do not care. And Braden reminds me, it's important to not be mindful, but be mind, mindful, not mindful. Not to have a mind full of nonsense and noise, yes. right? Yes, be intentional and yeah. I like to share. I'm the extrovert. But you've also... Um... You, you offer a really powerful perspective. The more we share, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. And if we don't share, uh, then, who, then, then we aren't helping people learn. So one of the things that has been going on in my head lately, I, every time there's a shift in my life, 
you know, that usually comes along with some different way of understanding God. We're shifting. Currently. And so now I'm trying to put words to this different understanding that I have. And the words, like, I'm struggling with the same thing that I feel like the writers of the scripture had to have struggled with. How do I put this in words that somebody else is actually going to understand and come anywhere close to actually seeing what it is that I have in my brain that there's so much to it that trying to put it all into words and I'm, I'm sitting here going, I've got words, I've got pictures, I've got music notes, I've got all sorts of things buzzing around in my head right now because of this shift that's happening. And I'm recognizing that I'm probably going to need all of those things, all the words, all the music, all the everything in order to be able to come anywhere close to actually getting across what I think I'm trying to get across. And that is terrifying, especially going back and thinking in terms of an artist like Freddie Mercury, who puts this piece of work out in the world and just says, you figure it out. You figure out what I meant by it. Mm -hmm. There's a humility in that, that that is incredibly difficult to come to because my ego wants it to be my story and my understanding. and I want you to get what I got. And sometimes it comes off to people like that. You know, when uh, Eric gave that Freddie Mercury perspective, one of the coolest things came to my mind, and it has to do with quantum mechanics. And by claiming that we have an understanding of the meaning, we have collapsed the wave function, which in essence makes the words dead. It has become dead. Whereas if we leave them with the wave function, and this is the challenge of quantum physics for a lot of people is that we can't deal with the fact that in life, everything is a potential. Our desires, our plans, everything is a potential contingent on things way beyond our control. So we try to collapse the function and nail it down, and we try to crystallize everything into what is functionally a dead form. And then we're like, okay, I'm good. But by leaving it open, so what, what Freddie Mercury did was he allowed those words to remain alive, and they will talk into eternity to people mm -hmm. because they are still alive. That's why the Bible works, because it they understood quantum mechanics. Now that's a bold statement. And they struggled with what Braden struggles with. How do you translate quantum mechanics so the average Joe can actually get what you're saying? And I'm probably talking, you know, so abstractly here that the majority of people have no clue what I just said, but Braden's nodding his head. He's hearing what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I know Eric hears what I'm saying because we've talked about this. <laughs> well, what you just said is perhaps a great way to bring this episode to a close uh, because it, it ends where we started with Robert Alter saying, 
the reason why these ancient texts have been so compelling through the ages is that they are works of art. We haven't been able to crystallize them as hard as we've tried. <laughs> as hard and as darn every, if we tried it. Yeah. Yeah. As hard as you know, the English translators have tried to crystallize it. Uh, it's it's this work of art that refuses crystallization. That's a good line. It's a it's a work of art that refuses crystallization. Yeah. And that's what Liz said earlier. I mean, I really appreciate your, I appreciated your guys' discussion of music because um, that spoke to me. I heard that. Thanks, John. It's true. Well, you guys have a blessed and art-filled day and listeners, may, uh, may the art of God, the artistry of God blow you away today. And may you see things in a renewed and refreshed vision. And ne until next time, when we probably explore a little bit more of what the Bible is, uh, have a, uh, a blessed and God-filled week. Love you guys. Uh, love you guys too. You guys. See you next time. Hey, thanks again for listening to A Questioning Faith. Next week, we're going to be talking about... Uh, looking behind the scenes of the Bible, sort of. Um, we're going to be looking into the world of the Bible and maybe try to get into the minds of some of the writers of our scriptures. It should be a really fun conversation. Hope you tune in.